After 1640, the global value of silver equalized, and China became just another port of call in the international trading system. Silver still flowed into China, but so did ginseng, furs, and opium. Tea, silk, and porcelain continued to flow out. The Second Boom China's first integration with the West in the late 1500s and early 1600s looked an awful lot like China's second integration with the West between 1980 and 2010. Both resulted in massive opportunities for arbitrage from the connecting of two previously isolated economies. Both resulted in massive profits for Western traders and Chinese merchants. And both petered out once the Chinese economy was fully inflated by Western money. In the 1970s, China was an isolated country with an economy based mainly on communal obligations and barter trade. Most people received most everything they needed from their work units. Rural people lived off the land, remitting a portion of their produce to the government. Urban people lived in factory housing, ate in factory cafeterias, and worked in factory uniforms. Money was a scarce commodity in communist China and Western hard currency was rarer still. After 1980, China imported massive quantities of hard currency in the form of foreign direct investment and central bank accumulation of U.S. dollars. It exported consumer goods in exchange. Just as in the 1600s, the basic underlying logic of China's economic boom after 1980 was the import of money in exchange for the export of goods. This influx of money supported the full remonetization of the Chinese economy. Goods and services that the state or the work unit had previously provided now had to be bought in the marketplace. China's GDP per capita grew by a factor of 13 between 1980 and 2010. If this sounds too good to be true, that's because it is too good to be true. China's economy did experience enormous growth after 1980, but no economy really grows by a factor of 13 in just 30 years. China's recorded growth is partly due to true economic progress and partly due to the monetization of previously non-monetary relationships. Today, both sources of recorded GDP growth are disappearing. Before 2007, China's foreign currency reserves were large in absolute terms, but more or less in line with those of many other developing countries. When the global financial crisis struck, China's reserves ballooned. They have remained high ever since. This suggests that China's once insatiable demand for hard currency has finally run its course. Investment flows tell the same story. China is now a net exporter of foreign direct investment. After three decades of massive monetary inflows, the Chinese economy is fully inflated and fully monetized. It's 1640 all over again. True growth in China's underlying economic output is slowing thanks to a falling working-age population, a degraded environment, and inadequate political institutions. China is converging with Brazil, Russia, and Turkey, not with the United States, Europe, and Japan. China's monetary saturation only reinforces this trend. As China's economy becomes more and more open, money is flowing out, not in. Now and then.
The years after 1640 were ones of great turmoil in China, culminating in famine, revolution, and invasion. Today's Chinese state is much more robust than the Ming Dynasty was. There will be no famine, revolution is unlikely, and no one is in a position to invade China. But the money-fueled profits party is over. From now on, it will be business as usual in China. China's new challenge is to develop the social and political institutions that will allow it to continue improving the lives of its people. There is no magic formula. A good start would be to implement a more effective national income tax to replace China's hodgepodge of unreliable revenue sources. Continued growth requires continued investment in human and physical infrastructure, and that requires taxes. Now that the easy money is gone, China will...